Hello and welcome to episode 12 of From Paper to People, Ancestors Alive Genealogy's snowballing contribution to the world of genealogy podcasts. I am your hostess with the mostest, Carolyn Nee Lachlan. For those of you who are waiting in suspended animation, yes, there is a difference between extra sharp cheddar and seriously sharp cheddar. I know you were waiting for that answer. I prefer the latter, but I will never say no. To aged dairy products, you will never catch me discriminating against cheese. And uh, I wasn't joking about the whole snowballing contributions because now for the fourth week in a row, as I sit down to start the podcast, I'm in the middle of yet another nor'easter. I don't know what it is, but it's the late February, early March, mid-March, and for all I know, late March and early April thing that happens on Long Island. We're in the fourth week of a snowstorm. It is so odd. Um, don't know why that is. I, I'm trying not to be paranoid about the idea that I'm bringing it because that would mean that I would have to stop recording long enough for, you know, like daffodils to come up. Not sure how that's going to go. Also, I apologize in advance. I have a bit of a chest cold. And if I cough or hack, I will do my best to edit it out. But um, I may sound a little rough this week. So there it is. I have a notice from the Department of Humblebrag. We just blew past the 960 download marks since this podcast started on January 2nd. So a thousand downloads is not far away. And thank you so much because I'm really glad to have you all here. But I do have to single out one state here in the U.S. If we were to make this into some kind of a competition, California would be kicking y'all's podcast listening butts. There's they're 15% of this podcast's listenership. 15%. Thank you, California. New York is in second. Texas is third. Washington State is in fourth. And Georgia rounds out the top five. You are all face-planting Utah. So, so much for the myth that Utah leads the way in genealogy. Last week, just in time for St. Patrick's Day, the podcast premiered on Spotify. And that, I was beginning to think, was never going to happen. I'm psyched because now, when you recommend this podcast to your friends who source all their audio from Spotify, they too will be able to listen. And my last bit of news is by no means the least important. This week's new supporter on Patreon is Stacy Stanley. You're now in my queue for work on that rough patch in your tree. Speaking of which, if you've asked me for assistance or I'm working on your tree for a tree reveal episode, please know that I love you, but I am swamped right now. This podcast has blown up beyond my wildest dreams, and I have interviews and reveals stacked up for the next few months, and I'm working on my beloved paycheck job, so please bear with me. It's not a lack of love. It's a lack of hours in the day. And now to this week's fun. It's another how-to episode, Keeping It Orderly or High Genealogy. This episode is for everybody, but it's specifically conceived with Mormons in mind because I'm sorry, brethren and sistren, you are some seriously hard-minded and change-averse people. I'm going to show you why using ancestry is neither as scary nor as hard as you think, and this will in turn open you to seeing why it's a superior research tool to family search. 
Ancestry helps researchers to work and add many records to individuals on family search using a hint system. This will help you to render each individual on family search completely researched, correct, and whole by doing that work in Ancestry first. And brownie points go out to all listeners who get the beetles and food references that I'm throwing in today. Regardless of what online tree software you use, if you're new to it, it's uncomfortable and it's confusing. It's the easiest thing in the world to say, the site I know is better because it's more familiar. I still find myself doing that, comparing and contrasting sites and finding fault with the unfamiliar. But that way of looking at things is a bar to actually learning the strengths and weaknesses and most of all the uses of each site. Today we're talking about how to prioritize hints on Ancestry in particular, but all tree sites in general, because it's too easy to get swamped. And if you're new to Ancestry, used to family search, and getting swamped while trying Ancestry, as many Mormons are while they're making this transition, you need to take a breath and develop a method of attack I'm going to share with you my way of breaking down hints and my reasons for doing it this way, but you can use it as a jumping off point and build your own way of using hints. As background, let's talk for a minute about Ancestry. What's the most confusing and frustrating thing about the layout and the interface to many new users? Hints, those little green shaky leaves that indicate there are documents that might pertain to the ancestor that you're investigating. The other day, I was having a conversation with a guy from church, and admittedly, I don't know this guy very well, but he was being very dismissive of me and everything that I was saying, which is nothing new. After all, I am a woman. He said that he didn't like all of the hints in Ancestry, so he really just wanted to work on family search. Of course, the whole point of Ancestry is the hints. And the whole point of the way that I teach is that Ancestry is the place to research so that family search can be updated and corrected. I really didn't have time to get into that argument with him, but hey, let's get into it here. As an LDS researcher or magical Mormon, I use Ancestry for research, then I carry my research citations over to family search, person by person, to add evidence and substantiation to individuals or to create individuals or family groups in the one world tree that is family search, i.e., there is one representation for every person who ever lived in family search, as opposed to Ancestry, where there can be as many representations of any person who lived as there are trees that folks create, and those trees they don't touch each other. As I've said before, while Family Search has some records that Ancestry doesn't have, Ancestry has many more records than Family Search. Let me say that again for the folks in the cheap seats. Ancestry has many more records than Family Search. Ancestry is the place to privately research trees. Family Search is the place to clean up bad old research and add good new research in a completely public forum. When you're in Ancestry and you've entered the name, birth data, and death data for a given ancestor, even if some of it is estimated, Ancestry's algorithm will say, yummy, data, and start looking for records of all kinds that match your ancestor. So let's say you're researching a woman whose info comes to you from family stories. Her first name is Melba, maiden name, Toast. Her husband's name is Maxwell, middle name, Silver, last name, Hammer. Melba's dad is P.B. Toast, but you have no other data for him. 
and Melba's mom is Charlotte. You're not sure about the rest. Roos, R-U-S-S-E, may be Charlotte's middle name, her maiden name, or her prior married name, even a subsequent married name. You're really not sure. You've entered Melba's estimated birth year, 1880, and birth country. Melba was born in the U.S., but you don't know anything more. Maxwell, on the other hand, was born in England, and you're estimating his birth year at 1880 also, because since they were married, they were probably about the same age. Your goal is to find Melba's vital dates, her siblings, all of her children, her parents' full names and BMDDs, birth, marriage, divorce, and death dates, and the same for Maxwell Silver Hammer, her husband. You enter all that you know for sure about Melba, Melba's parents, and Maxwell into Ancestry, and it does its thing. Yummy data search. But what exactly is that thing that it's doing? No record search for Melba Toast is completely isolated because she has parents, a spouse, and probably siblings and children. Still, let's consider Melba Toast primarily because we can only look at one person at a time. Ancestry examines Melba Toast's birth date and place, roughly 1880, and definitely the USA, her husband and parents as you entered them, P.B. Toast and Charlotte Roos, and seeks matches for her in at least the following records and ways. Melba Toast in birth certificates for herself, along with P.B. Toast and Charlotte as her parents, which would be a great place to find Charlotte's maiden name and possibly what the initials P.B. stand for. Melba Toast in birth indexes for herself. Melba Toast in federal and state census records for herself and her parents P.B. and Charlotte, and here too you might find what P.B. stands for. Melba Toast and Maxwell Hammer or Maxwell Silverhammer in marriage certificates for themselves where their parents' names will be listed. Melba Toast and Maxwell Hammer or Maxwell Silverhammer in marriage indexes for themselves. Melba Toast Hammer with Maxwell Hammer or Maxwell Silverhammer in death certificates and death indexes where she is the decedent. Melba Toast and Melba Hammer, along with Maxwell Hammer or Maxwell Silverhammer, in death certificates and death indexes where they are listed as parents to a deceased child or deceased children. Melba Toast, Melba Hammer, Melba Toast Hammer, and Maxwell Hammer or Maxwell Silverhammer in the Social Security records of any possible children that may have resulted from the Toast Hammer Union. Melba Toast Hammer in subsequent marriage records for her in case she was predeceased or divorced by Maxwell Silver Hammer and vice versa. Melba Hammer and Maxwell Hammer together in city directories. Melba Toast or Melba Toast Hammer in Social Security records for Melba herself if she died after the enactment of the Social Security Act. Ancestry does all of these things in, you know, a few milliseconds because computers. I don't know how it works. I just know that it works. And please, if you're an IT geek, don't write or call and tell me how it works. I don't want to know. I want to believe in magic. Once these records are pulled up, they are provided to you as hints, signified by those shaky little green leaves you see on the graphic representation of your tree. Now, every case is different. What you do first depends on what records are pulled up by Ancestry. 
But in Melba's case, there is a birth certificate hint that looks likely because of the parent's name shown. There is also a death certificate that looks good. There are a few marriage certificate hints, not only for Melba and Maxwell as the bride and groom, but also showing them as parents of some kids. And there are some census records for Melba showing her with parents who have the same names or initials as the ones we know about, and more census records for her after her marriage to Maxwell. Now what do you do? I like to start by bracketing a life, if I can. Census records frequently contain incomplete or even estimated birth information, and there can be multiple people with similar names in nearby places at the same time, but with different parents. It can get very confusing. Birth, marriage, and death certificates are made at the time and location of birth, marriage, and death. Since there are possible birth, marriage, and death certificates for Melba, I would look at those first, starting with the birth certificate. Because we're looking at a birth in the vicinity of 1880, this record provides a fair amount of detail. Older records don't necessarily collect as much data. This birth certificate will list the names of Melba's parents and, of course, her exact date and place of birth. The birth certificate is Melba's. It provides parents with names corresponding to what you've got so far. In fact, it gives Charlotte's maiden name, which is indeed Ruse, R-U-S-S-E. It gives her father's name as Peter B. Toast. So now we know what P stands for. And it also gives Melba's exact birth date and birthplace, as expected. Now we know that she was born in Buffalo, New York, on 18 May, 1879. When you add the record to her tree, you will add all of that new or improved information to her and to her parents, replacing the estimated data you entered initially. Next, the marriage certificate. It lists Melba's parents by name and Maxwell's parents' names as well. It also lists Maxwell's specific birthplace in England, St. Albans in Hertfordshire. So as you add the record to your tree, you can add that data along with Maxwell's parents' names, Julia Lennon and Richard Starkey Hammer. That pushes you back a generation on Maxwell's side, as well as providing the precise date and location of Melba and Maxwell's marriage, 23 June 1901 in Buffalo, New York. Finally, Melba's death certificate. It provides Melba's death date, 20 August 1955. It shows her parents' names as Charlotte Roos and P. Brian Toast. So now we know that her dad's full name is Peter Brian Toast. It gives the location of her death, Omaha, Nebraska. It also provides the name of her husband, Maxwell Silver Hammer. So we can be sure that she only had one husband in her lifetime. This is all important data. Add it to replace the estimated or empty fields in your tree. Update Melba's dad's name so that there are no more initials and move on. The next thing that I go to is the census records, starting with the federal census records. Since she was born in 1879 and died in 1955, the U.S. census records are taken every 10 years in the zero years, so we can expect to see her in the 1880, 1900, 1910, 1920, 1930, and 1940 censuses. Here's an extra credit question. Why not the 1890 census? Answer, because the whole thing burned in a big old fire. 
For all intents and purposes, there is no 1890 census for us now, except for tiny little local excerpts here and there. Extra, extra credit. Why not in the 1950 census? Answer, it has not been released yet. Per federal law, it's not due for release until 72 years from the time it was taken, or 1950 plus 72 equals the year 2022. Honestly, with censuses, I like to start in the middle decades and work forward from the first married census, in this case 1910, which we know from the marriage certificate, and then back. This way, I can add Melba and Maxwell's children in successive decades, some of whom might not have survived from 1910 to 1920, for instance, and then continue to trace Melba's residences as perhaps Maxwell predeceases her and she moves in with one of her children for her final years, which often happened. After all, she managed to move in adulthood from Buffalo, New York to Omaha, Nebraska, which is not a short distance. She had to have a compelling reason. This allows me to add spouses to Melba and Maxwell's children and then carry those families down. Then, having established the post-marital life for Melba, I would go backwards, establishing her life with Charlotte Roos and P.B. Toast, her parents, in childhood and adolescent census records. This lets me add siblings and possibly their spouses to the tree, since multiple generations of families frequently lived under one roof, and sometimes, even after they married, kids moved back in with their parents. And again, Plenty of children were alive for one census, but did not survive to the next, and we don't want to miss anybody. More hints might pop up as a result of these records being added to the tree, because remember, as I said in previous episodes, ancestry learns. If a few other researchers add these records in a group to Melba in their trees, ancestry will have its aha moment and will pull up more records for your consideration that others added to Melba in their family trees. The records may not be right, but they're there for your consideration. After that, examine state census records where they exist. They're made in the five years instead of the zero years. Melba's kids will have their own Social Security death records, and she'll appear as mother on those, so connect those records as well to further substantiate those ties and complete the names and dates of birth and death of her children. You can also search using the spyglass up in the upper right-hand corner for Melba and Maxwell in city directories, and Melba's own Social Security records may pop up. Examine those for applicability as well, and every correct record that you find add it. As you do this a few times, you might decide that my way stinks and that you have your own way that you like better. And hey, that's fine. That's good. Just remember and anchor in your mind that no date and place information for birth, marriage, and death for Melba Toast or any real person in your tree will ever improve from any record upon the information from a birth certificate, a marriage certificate, and a death certificate, because those are contemporaneous records. They were made at the time of the events that they record. Do not, therefore, replace those pieces of data with estimates made at other dates by other agencies or in any census. Lock in those pieces of information as best evidence and do not give them up. Do not let hints buffalo you. And that's it for this week, folks. So what have we learned today? 
Don't be afraid of the unknown. Just take a deep breath and try to understand why something you don't yet understand was made the way that it was. Keeping it clean and practicing hygieneology, whether your kind or the kind that I outlined here, will make it easier for you to attack multiple hints for each new ancestor that you face in ancestry. And never discount what someone suggests to you, whether you think you know better because you're older, you're younger, you've been at it longer, or because of the gender of the person making the suggestion. We can all learn from one another. It's the nature and the joy of the work. Thanks so much for listening. If you podcast and you want original theme music like mine, email my good friend, Kurt Brady at curtisbrady at yahoo.com. Tell him I sent you. He can hook you up with rock, blues, country, folk, pretty much anything you can think of. If you have a concept or a music sample, send it to him. He writes, plays, and records. Would you like to ask an on-air question? I'm in the U.S., so if you're calling from outside the country, use the country code 010, then dial 631-201-0589 and leave a message with your name, location, and question. I'll play it and answer it on air. Otherwise, you know where you can find me. I am highly accountable. I'm online at AncestorsAliveGenealogy.com and on Facebook at Ancestors Alive Genealogy. Follow me on Twitter at Ancestors Alive and on Instagram at Ancestors Alive Genealogy. If you have an idea or a question for the mailbag, you can contact me at AncestorsAliveGenealogy at gmail.com. And please, if you find value in this podcast, you can support me in two ways. Rate and review it on iTunes and support me on Patreon to win or earn valuable prizes. Go to patreon.com slash ancestors alive and sign up for any of five support levels ranging from $5 to $25 per month. I need those positive reviews and that financial support to keep this virtual classroom going. Have a great week. Do your research. Don't be a Jeffrey. Practice good hygieneology, and above all, expect surprises.